My grandmother was my primary parent. My mom went off to work, so my, I was home with my grandmother a lot. And I got so much wisdom from her. You know, she was in some ways very stoic. You know, she, she well, on one hand, she was stoic. On the other hand, she was also, I think, a bit numb, kind of PTSD numb from her experience in the, in the war. She would vacillate from being really quiet and then sometimes she would just get really angry and explode. And I didn't know what to do about that. I didn't know what to do with that. You know, when I'm a three and four and five and eight year old, it's like, what do you do with that? It's just, you know, and, and I've talked to people who've grown up in houses of like alcoholic parents and they oftentimes explain that same kind of terror of just never knowing what's gonna happen when. So it's complicated, you know, and at the same time, I have such compassion um, and empathy for my grandmother's experience. Hey, my friends, this is Nishant and welcome to the Nishangar show. The mission of the show is to spread mindfulness awareness and my job on this show is to Sit with the world-class experts to extract the practices, routines, and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. Today's guest is Alan Hunkins. Alan helps high-achieving people become high-achieving leaders. Over his 20-year career, Alan has worked with over 2,000 groups of leaders in 25 countries. Clients include Walmart, Pfizer, Citigroup, General Electric, State Farm Insurance, IBM, General Motors, and Microsoft. In addition to being a leadership speaker, consultant, trainer, and coach, Alan is the author of Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. He is the faculty member of Duke Corporate Education, and his writing has been featured in Fast Company Inc., Forbes, Chief Executive, Chief Learning Officer, and Business Insider. I personally had super fun in this conversation on creativity, problem-solving, conflict management, effective communication, getting quiet to reflect, and much, much more. For show notes, please visit nishangurg.me slash podcast. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Alan. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nishant. I'm so excited to be here with you today. It is my pleasure, and we are going to have a wonderful conversation. So I thought if we could start with your childhood. Where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Yeah, so I grew up in Flushing, Queens, in New York City. And it's funny because I, I write about this in my book too, is uh, I, I call it the story behind the story. I think we, we all have stories and childhood is our family of origin. So for me, it turns out it was a pretty unique childhood. So I grew up in New York City and that's not unique at all. I was raised by my single mom and my grandmother, which again, not particularly unique. But Nisha, for me, the unique part, which I really didn't think about really until I was older, was the fact that both of my mother and my grandmother are survivors of the Holocaust. So they were, my mom was born in 1935 and she's of, her parents are Polish Jews. She was born in Belgium. And so in 1942, when the Nazis invaded, uh, my grandmother took her then nearly seven-year-old daughter and put her in hiding through the Belgian underground. And she spent three years separated from her mother over that time. Thankfully, my grandmother, who was actually imprisoned in a concentration camp, was liberated, and then the two of them were reunited. 
after the war, though almost everyone else in the family was killed. And as you can imagine, that completely shaped their worldview and obviously how they ended up raising me as their child and their grandchild and my brother as well. So, so it was interesting because my experience of life at home was so viscerally different than it was when I went to school, say, you know, being in school or going over to my friends' houses. And I think part of my interest in human psychology and why people do what they do and how people create cultures that they either thrive or don't thrive in, I think that has a lot to do with trying to make sense of my own family of origin. I will come back to this part in a while. So before we go further, Alan, how would your two children describe what you do for a living? Oh my, how would my two children describe what I do? One thing would be, you know, because I, you know, this book came out like, oh, dad, you're talking about the book again. <laughs> you're talking about the book. Oh, it's all, they'd go leadership, leadership, leadership. I mean, yeah. So, and then there would be the compulsory eye roll as well. Oh, dad, you know. So they know that I work with people and I work with a bunch of groups and teams. But yeah, for the most part, it's like, oh, you got to talk about that stuff again. Yeah, that's uh, that's I'd love to say they, they they saw it in other ways. And hopefully at some point they will. But that's where we're at for right now. <laughs> Does your wife have to see the same thing? No, no. Thank goodness. <laughs> that would be tough. That would be tough if she said the same thing. No, no. Actually, she works in, she's actually works in the field of human development. And so we talk shop. In fact, she's oftentimes the first person to read a new chapter that I'm working on. And, and we go back and forth. And she really helps me to expand my own depth of thinking. And in fact, she just got a master's degree in creative problem solving this past year. So her whole methodology of looking at the world of problem solving has really informed me because, you know, so many of these different disciplines start to interact with each other. If you start to look at them through the lens of the human experience, right? It's a big, broad category. And I think so much of it is applicable. So yeah, no, we have very different conversations than my kids <laughs> and I do for sure. What are some of your ways to be creative to solve problems? Interesting. So as you say that, the first thing I think when it comes time to be creative and solve problems, the first word that came to mind was get quiet. I tend to, I can get very implementation focused and I'm in task mode, like going and going and going and doing, doing, trying to get things done. And let's face it, when I'm in that mode, I am not particularly a great creative problem solver. So for me, something that I often do is just try to find some time quiet. Sometimes I'll go for a walk and I'll start though with trying to create a really, what I'll call it a very juicy question, you know, to understand, to try to clarify what is the problem that I'm thinking about and then sit with it. I think one of the key things I have found is just if I, I can't, I won't say that I'm the world's best problem solver at all, but I will stick with the problem for a while till something starts to emerge. So for me, just to recap that, it's a lot of quiet reflection and some time to let it incubate and percolate. You mentioned about walking. So when you are on a walk, do you think about the problem statement or you just try to let it go? I usually have the problem statement in advance and then I let it go and then just think because other things will come into my mind from there. Then sometimes if I, if I have a phone with a voice recorder, I'll capture that. I used to carry little index cards wherever I went to sometimes to see, capture little notes because when I come up with an idea, 
it goes, it comes and then it goes. And so I just already capture those so I can refer back to them a little later on. What other practices do you have to get into that quiet space to really go into your creative mode? Wow, there's a few different ones. So walking is one, journaling as well, thinking through how do I journal? And, and, and that can look at different things in, in different times. Oftentimes I find when I, I also, the time of day makes a big difference to me. So oftentimes first thing in the morning, though lately I've been getting awoken in the middle of the night with just some ideas. And then I have a pad of paper and a pen next to my bed and I try to capture things there. So really trying to hold these ideas loosely. I mean, I find now one of the things I do better at, I can't say I'm great at, but one of the things I do better with now is as ideas come is to capture them and not judge if this is the right one, because, you know, trying to stay with that divergent, just letting things come. This is the first draft. We'll get to editing later and being better about being okay with what I'll call the ugly phase. I feel like with any creative project, you've got to go through the ugly phase. And the more I do creative projects, the more I'm going, oh yeah, I'm in the ugly phase right now. That's where, that's why this is uncomfortable because part of me wants this to be finished and pretty and looking neat and nice and ready for production. And I'm not there, <laughs> right? You just gotta be like, I'm not there yet. And this is the ugly phase. And the only way to get through the ugly phase is to get through it. You can't skip it. And I think a lot of people give up early on. So, so for me, it's just, okay, I, it's the ugly phase. Same thing, as, let's say, for example, I've written something out that I want to turn into a speech. Well, I've got to get it on its feet and actually say the words out loud. And the first time it's on its feet, there's this little gremlin voice inside saying to me, this sucks, you suck, this is no good, right? But that's the ugly phase. Those are the ugly critical voices talking to me. And I know that the way through that is to continue and go. And that's the shaping and refining. And that is actually the process of the work. And so something I've found is the key to this, whether that's in writing or speaking or problem solving, the key is to actually just stay with the process as you go through that. I would love to ask you about this ugly phase. You have mentioned so many great things about ugly phase. Ugly phase is not beautiful for sure. How do you listen to that inner voice in that ugly phase when it is saying that, Ellen, you can do it. Ellen, you're not good enough. Okay, well, there's two parts here. Okay, so let's just differentiate. So there's the ugly phase of just the work of the first draft, and then there's the critical voice that judges the ugly phase. So that's not the same thing, right? So there's two different things going on. So the first thing, so allowing that first draft stream of consciousness to come out without judging the work product itself. Then look, as, without judging, that's ideal. What ends up happening is that little gremlin voice comes on and says, this isn't good, is noticing it and actually just honoring it. Because what it's trying to do is protect me, right? So it's trying to protect a part of me, the part of me that is scared about judgment, scared about what will people think if it's not good. That's what it's trying to do. It actually serves a purpose. I think that all of these internal critical voices, they're there to serve and to help. They have just, they're just a bit misguided. So what I try to do is I notice it. And, and part of this has to do, I do better at noticing it now because it's come up so many times over the years that now I can go, oh, hello, Gremlin. <laughs> there you are again. I know you. You're here to judge this, aren't you? And so I just don't get as triggered. Now I get triggered sometimes, but I find I get triggered less frequently. 
and less intensely for shorter periods of time, and I'm able to recover from those moments of self-criticism and self-doubt and self-lack of belief much more quickly. How did you cultivate this skill to listen to that critical voice? Oh, a lot of personal work, <laughs> like doing a lot of personal work. So I, and not just on my own. So I am part of a men's group that has met, I've been in different groups for 25 years. And that's a place where when I see certain patterns come up, I can go and talk to others. And some of them are skilled facilitators. And I've become actually not just there, but I can actually facilitate myself through this process now. But when I, when I first started in this professional and personal development work, I needed help. So I would go to somebody else and they would ask me, they'd be, a, you know, whether it's a coach or a facilitator would come and, or a good friend would come and they'd ask me questions. You know, I, I'd say something like, I don't think I can do this. Like, you know, I'm, I'm scared to write this. And they might ask me a question like, so Elena, what's at risk if you do this? And so what that started to do was unpack my own limiting beliefs. And as I started to do that, I got clear on where those limiting beliefs came from, how they were trying to serve me, and how I could redirect them in a different way. What advice would you give to our listeners who, are, who may be having a tough time in that ugly phase of anything in their life? Yeah, so first of all, my experience is that we all do much better if we can have some compassion and love for these parts as opposed to noticing them and going come on get out of here like just being critical and like just like beating up on that part of yourself is beating up on part of yourself right so it's part <laughs> of you so so it's like so basically first my first piece of advice is to go gentle right? To, to be gentle. Like if you can create some kindness and some compassion and some love for these parts of you, because they're trying to serve a purpose. They're trying to now, again, and it probably worked at some point in your life. It worked. Like, for example, for me, learning how to detach and disconnect emotionally worked really well when I was six years old, right? When I was basically powerless and could do nothing else in a family system, I got really good at disassociating and detaching. However, when I'm married with two kids and, I've, and my wife is asking me something, if I start to detach and disassociate, it's not a great move, right? And, but my, but my six-year-old self is still inside me, as it were, a part of me. So learning how to be compassionate and then, I mean, you know, the other thing beyond being gentle, I think you need to have some kind of a practice where you're on a regular basis reflecting on your own behavior, and thinking about what's working well and how could you do things differently. And whether that's reflecting by yourself, whether that's getting feedback from people who will give you the honest truth. You know, I know you had Tasha Yurik on a little while ago, who I <laughs> yeah. really respect, you know, but she talks about in, you know, insight and how most people are so bad at self-awareness. And in her, her book, Insight, she talks about these alarm clock moments, like these, when do we have these wake-up calls? So my suggestion is how can you start to build more of these alarm clock moments, these wake-up calls for you to step back and reflect on how things are going on a continuous basis? You know, Marshall Goldsmith asks himself a series of questions every single day, which is exactly what Benjamin Franklin did at the same time, right? So creating some kind of a structure where you're having to reflect. Now, whether that's at the end of the day, writing down a few like what worked well, what would be different, and what are you grateful for? So just to start to cultivate rituals that involve 
reflection and contemplation so that you can take the experience and learn from it. I like to joke sometimes when it comes to this is that we've all worked with people. Let's say someone has 20 years of experience. So there are people, some wise sages in the world who may have 20 years of experience. And then there are other people who have one year of experience 20 times, right? That means they don't, <laughs> they don't learn from their own experience. They keep repeating the same patterns over and over again. And in our hyper busy world, it's really easy to use the busyness as an excuse to keep from reflecting. And the fact is our world defaults to go, go, do, do. It's really up to you and up to me to press pause and carve out the space and time to do the necessary work of reflection, if that's something that you want to do. Ellen, for self-reflection, do you have personal, some personal favorite questions that you try to answer very often? Well, interesting. When, when I'm doing this on myself, one place that I often start with is I ask, how am I feeling right now? And to really sit with that. And when I ask myself, how am I feeling? I'm looking for an answer, not in my head. I'm actually looking for an answer in my body. Like, where am I feeling this? How? So I use that as a diagnostic. So what I mean by that, Nishant, is that my sense is that our feelings, they're there for a reason. So for example, if I'm noticing that I'm some, and I'm just going to use kind of some four basic primary feelings here. We can imagine them like primary colors. Yes, there's variations around these, but let's just start with these. So let's say, for example, I notice that I'm feeling some, something in the realm of anger about something. Well, I, my shorthand is about anger is I know anger is around, I had a boundary that was violated. So my follow-up question to myself is, okay, so what's the boundary that's been violated here? And that, and if I start to think of it and think of myself in the third person, you know, almost talk to myself in the third person, so what's the boundary that's being violated here? I'm start, I'm doing that to give myself a little bit of emotional distance. Have you ever noticed, Nishan, it is so much easier to solve your friend's relationship problems than your own? Yes, all yeah, the time. Right. All the time, right? So this is, I'm kind of doing the same little, little Aikido on myself here, right? So I'm like, so alas, I'm talking to myself in my head in the third person here. So, so what boundary is being violated here? And then what I'm able to do is not be so triggered emotionally, but to start to actually have some distance the way a friend would and start to notice, okay, so what needs to happen here? So do I need to reset the boundary? Do I need to speak up? Do I need to defend the boundary? What needs to happen? So that's, that's around anger. Let's say I'm noticing I feel sadness. Well, sadness is generally around loss. So what is it that I feel like I've lost? And have I given myself a space to grieve that loss if that's in fact what I need to do? So I look at that and see, and so I last. So what's the loss? What feels like it's a loss? And just to notice that. And part of this process is to acknowledge it. So first to be aware and acknowledge the boundary has been violated, to acknowledge that there's a loss there as well, right? So then I look at fear. So the fear is basically, fear is always future focused. So what do you think bad might happen? And then with fear, sometimes I, I pull a little cognitive behavioral therapy tricks. It's like, so what actually could happen? And I put myself down the list of, hmm, so is it, what's the likelihood that'll happen? And as I start to give myself the sense, I realize that actually for most of the time, I would say like when I say most, like 80 to 90%, almost all of my fears are unfounded. Like they're just me thinking something's going on. So we've got that, just notice that. And then let's say just for example, I'm feeling good. It's like joy is like, I, I've got what I want. I'm feeling okay about that. So notice how is that? How is that feeling my body? And then what am I appreciative of or what and who am I grateful for 
in those. So I can anchor that in because I'm a big believer that what drives human behavior is emotion. And the more that I can anchor in those positive emotions like joy, like enthusiasm, like appreciation, like celebration, then I'm actually sending my body some signals to continue and do more of that behavior. So that's a little bit of what I do. What are you grateful for these days? Oh my gosh, I am grateful for so much right now. It's kind of making my head spin. No, in a good way. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm in the middle of running this 30-day challenge with about 110 people in five continents right now. And it's super cool. But part of what we do is every day, people, there's a gratitude wall and people are posting one thing they're grateful for. And it's, I love to see just the things that are going on. So for example, I was really grateful. So today in Western Massachusetts, where I live, it was a first snowfall of the year. And my 13 year old daughter was so excited. She was downstairs shrieking, daddy, daddy. And just like, and I knew to go down because I also realized she's 13 only once in her life. So I was savoring her 13 year old exuberance at this first snowfall. So that's something that's a little moment, but oh my gosh, it was just such a wonderful thing to be grateful for. But something else I'm so grateful for, for example, Nisha, I'm talking to you. We've connected through LinkedIn. I mean, you're in Austin, I'm in Massachusetts. We've connected through Cyberworld. We have people in common. I'm so grateful for all the contacts that I've made and also these visible and invisible threads of other people within these circles and parallel streams of networks that bring people together. I mean, it's kind of um, like if I step back and think about how the universe works to allow this to happen so that right now you and I are having this interview. I mean, that's an amazing thing. So there's just so much to be grateful for. I mean, I'm grateful for my physical body. My, my 78 year old father is debilitated from Parkinson's disease and to see he's in stage four Parkinson's where he's he's been falling down he can barely feel his feet anymore so as I see him decline it, it heightens my own gratitude for the fact that my body works reasonably well so I just see that there's just so many things to be grateful for if I can stay present to them and look, like I'd love, <laughs> I'd love to say that I'm like this happy, jolly beam of gratitude all the time, but there are definitely, I mean, I definitely have my glass half empty days and times. So, but just right now, I'm just, you know, when I get to talk about the things that I'm passionate about, puts me in this much more abundant, grateful state of mind. Speaking of glass half empty, I would like to ask you that, What's your self-talk look like when you are in any ugly phase of your life? It can be in the writing a book, any relationship thing, in any phase of your life. What's your self-talk look like? Sure. So for me, I would say a really strong message. And I mean, the great thing is when you do work on these things, these messages, they show up again. It's not like you, you work on them once like, oh, I got rid of that message forever. No, it's just like, I just noticed it now, but it comes back again. It's like peeling layers of an onion. So for me, one of the big pieces around self-talk is the message of that's, I'm not good enough. You know, I, I, I'm not good enough that there's something else I should be doing and I'm not doing it now. And other people are doing it and I don't know what it is. So there's a lot of criticism on myself about not being a good, not good enough. There's confusion about what should, should go on. I mean, I guess you could call that underneath. There's a certain level of imposter syndrome, right? So like, mm. ooh, this, you know, I mean, that has certainly diminished over the years, but it come, it flares up from time to time. But I'd say, yeah, a really strong one is this not good enough. And what advice would you give to your 13-year-old self? <laughs> 
Uh, are we saying the 13-year-old self? Well, there's a couple things. I mean, certainly if you're feeling they're not good enough, one is just I would give my 13-year-old self, first of all, a huge giant hug to tell him that you are, you're okay. In the 13-year-old self, I would say that my 13-year-old self thought that other people out there all had the answers. And also my 13-year-old self, and in fact, it wasn't just my 13-year-old self, so I'll, I'll segue to this in a moment, into my 23-year-old self. And I would give the same advice, so we'll count, count them both, which is when I was 23, I went to my first we'll call it personal development workshop ever. And it was a community building workshop that was run by the Foundation for Community Encouragement, which was founded by a guy named Scott Peck, who wrote a famous book about 30 years ago called The Road Less Traveled. In fact, more like 40 years ago, if you, if you know that book. Yeah. But, and he wrote a book, different book called The Different Drum. And so this community building workshop is about giving people the experience of what it's like to go through the process of building authentic community. And basically it was a two and a half day workshop and we had 40 people in a circle. And the goal of the workshop is to build community. And there are only two rules, Nishant. First rule is speak when you're moved to speak and don't speak when you're not moved to speak. So that actually comes out of the tradition of the Quakers, if you're familiar with that. And the other rule was when you speak to make I statements. So don't make, you know, don't say you all need, it's like speak for yourself, you make I statements. So those are the only two rules for two and a half days. Okay. And so we start and there's two facilitators there to hold the space with us. And as we start, someone next to me, this woman starts to share something very personal about herself. And she actually shares something about a wound that she'd been, you know, something that had happened in her life, a trauma she'd experienced. And again, you, you said what to ask my 13 year old self. This is my 23 year old self. And at this moment, as she's sharing this, I am having this light bulb epiphany awareness, wake up call Nishant, because what I'm having in going on for me at this moment is, oh my gosh, like other people have doubts. Other people are screwed up as I am, as it were, right? Now, I, mean, in a, I mean, I'm saying that sort of tongue in cheek, but the idea is that I suddenly realized that I wasn't alone. See, I had thought that all of my doubts and stuff were just me because no one had ever talked to me overtly about it. And there was something so liberating about realizing that I wasn't alone See, and I think when I work with people and coach people, one of the first things I ask about is what kind of support do you have? Because I think so many of us, especially in North America, we can be such an individual, individualistic society where we think, you know, I've got to, I'm going to make it. And this idea of a self-made success, it's like how can you find that community of support around you to let you know that wherever you are on your journey is that you're not alone and that other people actually do want to support you because that's a way to actually support them as well. Alan, do you remember what that lady shared with you? Do I remember exactly what she shared? I remember she shared a story. It was about some kind of abuse that had gone on in her childhood. And yeah, I can't, I, I don't want to really kind of go and share her story, but it, it, had, <laughs> sure. it, had, to, it had to do with her something, something traumatic that had happened in her childhood. And uh, I was just sort of stunned because I was not aware that, this this sort of stuff happened. I mean, I guess I was aware of it conceptually, but I had never experienced that to that level of depth and vulnerability before. And that was a great teacher that day. As we're talking about childhood, old days, I would love to ask you, how was your relationship with your grandmother? Oh, that's a great question. It's complicated. You know, I mean, I my grandmother was my primary parent. My mom went off to work. So my, I was home with my grandmother a lot. 
And I got so much wisdom from her. You know, she was in some ways very stoic. You know, she, she, well, on one hand, she was stoic. On the other hand, she was also, I think, a bit numb, kind of PTSD numb from her experience in the, in the war. She would vacillate from being really quiet. And then sometimes she would just get really angry and explode. And I didn't know what to do about that. I didn't know what to do with that. You know, when I'm a three and four and five and eight year old, it's like, what do you do with that? It's just, you know, and, and I've talked to people who've grown up in houses of like alcoholic parents, and they oftentimes explain that same kind of terror of just never knowing what's going to happen when. So it's complicated, you know, and at the same time, I have such compassion um, and empathy for my grandmother's experience. I mean, think about what she lived through. I mean, during the war, she was working on the black market trying, I mean, the things she did to try to keep her family alive in the middle of craziness. I mean, can you imagine being literally hunted for your life? I mean, this is what was going on. So now I see her, you know, she was a rock and she also gave us structure, my brother and I. I mean, she gave us structure. She talked about the importance of hard work and she modeled that. I mean, she did everything around the house to keep things going. Now, at the same time, I mean, I also got some messages from her, like one of the key messages she shared with me, she said, and I remember this multiple times, if you can't do something well, don't do it at all. Which for those that know kind of Carol Dweck's work and mindset, that is a such yes. a... That is such a fixed mindset statement. So I got really good in a very narrow band of the things that I thought I was good in, which is AKA fixed mindset. But it also made me very terrified to tr step out and try new stuff for the longest time, you know, and I get it. I mean, this is where she came from. This is what she knew. So, you know, at the end of all of it, I, I think back on that experience and I am you know, I'm really grateful for all of it. I'm a big believer. In fact, I was talking with somebody earlier today about this. I think that in many ways, our greatest gifts come out of our deepest wounds. And if I think about the fact that for whatever karmic reason, I was born into this family and I had my mother, my grandmother, my primary parents, the gift that gave me was a certain sensitivity and empathy and insight to something about humans at a very, very young age. And so I was starting on this track really early, which gave me that much more life experience to be able to build on it. So if you ask me now around my relationship with it, with my grandmother, I'm grateful. I'm really grateful. You know, the good, the bad and the ugly. I'm kind of grateful for all of it. Thank you for explaining that, Helen. And in the preparation of this conversation, I read that you once long, long time ago, you had a dinner conversation with your colleague and his father, who became the CEO of a multi-billionaire dollar organization. And you asked him, at what point in your career did you feel like you arrived? So I want to ask you the same question. <laughs> at what point in your career did you feel like you arrived? Well, you know, the end of that story, by the way, you know, the end of the story is like, yes, I feel like, he's like, when, when did you feel successful? Or, when, or when, he says, when did you, the, the, the answer was, when do you feel like you had to stop proving yourself? And he said, ha, huh, that's easy. It's the day you retire. Like every day you have to prove yourself. You know, so, but to answer your question, more around the sense of when do I feel like I arrived? You know, it's, I wish I could come up with something really pithy to say right now, but honestly, I don't think, arrival, I, there's not a moment. I mean, this to me, there's, it's such a journey and every chapter of the journey brings its own highs and its own lows. 
I don't know. I mean, certainly there have been certain milestones that I think, wow, that's exciting. Like the day that the publisher sent my book in the mail and I got to see my name in print on the book that was published by a major publisher. That's exciting. But I'm not like, hey, look, I'm a published author. I'm arrived. You know, that's not where I go. Everything is a journey. I'm trying to appreciate all of it. And there are times that, you know, I look back and I think, wow, I'm a published author. I, I should be happier right now. <laughs> so because like four years ago, I wasn't and I was so wanting to be. But it's, I don't know. I also am not someone who puts a lot of stock in external labels about I should be this way or I need to look this way or I have to draw. I mean, that would be, you know, the, the, the extension of that is I need to drive a certain car or be, you know, have a certain job or a title. I mean, I'm just not that externally focused, to be honest, Nishant. Do you remember any of the nuggets from that conversation that might have a positive impact in your life and on you? Oh, I think the nuggets from that conversation, yeah. So this was with a good friend of mine that I used to work with her. Her dad was the CEO of, uh, of a billion-dollar company. To me, the nuggets from that conversation had to do with, yeah, you never stop proving yourself in that you can't, A, you can't coast, right? You can't coast on your laurels. I mean, you should take breaks and rest sometimes for sure. But B is the sense that, yeah, I mean, you're always being watched and people are judging you. And you can't say, well, you know, I did great stuff last year. You know, I mean, the, the, the obvious analogy here is athletics, right? They say you're only as good as your last game. And I think in some ways that analogy works well here is that, you know, what am I doing today to model the type of person I'm going to be? I mean, look, I work in the field of leadership development. And to me, if I don't, spend time practicing ways to walk my talk. I, I mean, talk about a, a field that is, could be filled with and is filled, by the way, with lots of fakers, posers, snake oil salesmen <laughs> and charlatans. I mean, because I don't try, I would never say to anyone, I've got this perfect. I mean, I'm in process. But the thing is, while I'm in process, I think I need to model this stuff and be as authentic as I can with it. Because everyone, let's face it, humans are really intuitive. We sniff out BS really well. And so for me, I just continue to work on modeling what I can based on these principles. So, you know, I write about these three mega skills, as it were, these skill sets of being a great leader. And those are around connection, communication, and collaboration. So, you know, I do reflect on a daily basis, you know, what am I doing to connect today? What am I doing to communicate effectively? How am I collaborating with others? And I just try to keep walking the path of that and the results will speak for themselves and I will get judged in the way that I will get judged. I have no control over that. Are you saying that if you want to crack the leadership code, the secret is to be a good communicator, a good influencer and knowing how to pursue it? I would say, you know, if you want to crack leadership code, you need to be a good connector. I'd start with connection because at its core, leadership is a relationship between two people, a person who leads and a person who chooses to follow. So I need to build a human-based relationship based on empathy. I also have to be credible. I have to know what I'm committing to doing and walk my talk and talk my walk. So that's step one is connection. Step two is I have to be a great communicator. I have to understand that at its core, we don't communicate for its own sake. We communicate to create shared understanding. So I need to be vigilant about championing shared understanding wherever I go. And then the third piece is I have to 
create environments where people can thrive and collaborate well. And for me, that is about understanding that there are some four fundamental needs that need to be satisfied in order for people to do Hmm. their best work. And for me, those four needs are people need to feel safe. If people don't feel safe, you're not going to be able to do anything. So it's both physically safe and psychologically safe. People need to be energized. So what are you doing to put, create an environment of energy around them? So the third one is around people need to have a sense of purpose, a sense of mission, that what they're doing is contributing to something greater than just themselves. And the fourth is the sense of ownership, that people want autonomy and some latitude and freedom to go about being creative in how they do their work. So yeah, connection, communication, collaboration, I believe are the keys to cracking the leadership code. I would love to talk to you about the communication part, Alan. So when, what, what do you do when you feel challenged in communicating effectively in any area of your life? Well, I, I think when you say you feel challenged, I'm going to go back to you here. When you say when you feel challenged, what do you mean by challenged in communicating? Any conflict management or any anything that mm-hmm. sometimes if you are not able to communicate your ideas in a effective way that another person is able to understand. Yeah. So there, so using that example, I think the first thing, if you feel like you're not communicating clearly first, is you need to call a timeout, as it were, and step back and you need to create clarity for yourself. Because one of the biggest challenges with communication, in fact, George Bernard Shaw has this great quote that I love. He says, the greatest problem with communication is the illusion that has taken place, right? And so just because I share some ideas or some words doesn't mean you're going to get much. The fact is what we need to do is be aligned between what do I mean and what do I say? And then what do you hear? And so what you just described is a gap between, so I mean something, but I actually can't say what I mean. So the first step in this is to create clarity and craft a central message that is so simple, so clear, that it is completely understandable to the the other person listening to me. So that's where I would start. And I would also then do something in the relationship to ensure that understanding has taken place. So in some ways, how do I reconfirm check back in with them, validate what's going on. I, I call that technique, in fact, calling it asking for a receipt. And there's actually, a, a, here's a quick little story that brings this to life about this concept, right? So in life, we all get receipts for things. You go to the store, you get a receipt. Not all the time, like, <laughs> right? Like you might go to the store and get a can of soda. Not that you drink soda, but if you did, or, or a bottle of water, if we prefer that. I mean, you might buy a bottle of water, you know, at 99 cents, you might not get the receipt, but I can guarantee you, Nishan, that if you buy a car, you would definitely get a receipt for that. <laughs> for you sure. Definitely, right, for sure. So the fact is, the more important the transaction, the greater likelihood you have a receipt. So that's true in commerce, but it's also true in communication. Because if you think about it, what we want to do in asking for a receipt in communication, it's a way to confirm that what we've said hasn't just been received, but that it's been understood. So this great example around this comes from the fast food industry. So I remember this because I'm old enough, but you might not. So in the 1980s, they started the drive-throughs in all the fast food restaurants. And at the time, the drive-through process was a nightmare. It was really common that people would drive up to the window, they you know, to the intercom, and they place their order, and they'd go up to the window to pick it up when they pay for it, and the order would be filled with mistakes. And this was true across the industry. And then all of a sudden, the drive-through mistake rates just started to plummet. And the simple fix, it's so obvious when you hear it. What they started doing is the employees would repeat the order back to the customer. 
before they'd start to make it. In other words, they'd ask for a receipt. So Nishan, did you order two hamburgers, a French fries and two Cokes? Yes, you did. Great. And then they'd make it, right? So just thinking about that simple step, how many of us are in meetings day to day where the meeting ends and we all assume that everyone's on the same page and off we go into the land of great misunderstanding, right? <laughs> so, so it's something as simple as that. So that's when you say, so what can we do? It doesn't matter if you're the speaker or you're the listener. If you care that understanding takes place, it's your responsibility to make sure it's happening. So you can be proactive on either side to make sure that you get the result that you want to get. Is there a right question to ask another person that the communication has done effectively or they have understood what we are trying to say? Yeah. So sometimes I'll give you the question that oftentimes people ask they think is the right answer. So what people will say is, is that all clear? <laughs> and what does everybody say? They say, yes. yes. And they say, yes, because underneath that, the subtext is, I'll say yes, because I don't want to look stupid, as opposed to, so just to be sure we're clear, can you, would you be willing to repeat back to me what your understanding of what I just said is, right? You see, that question actually forces a receipt, right? Now they're going to have to spit it back and they can go, yes, no. And, you know, there's a way to frame that question so it doesn't sound like you're interrogating them. You can say, hey, just to make sure we're on the same page, can you repeat back just your understanding of what we're walking away with? Thanks. You know, you, <laughs> you can do it in a very lighthearted, simple way. But that would be the, that, that's the money question, right? That's the question to ask as opposed to, so everyone's clear, right? <laughs> that, which is even worse, right? So a leading question that's closed-ended that you don't want to really hear the answer to. And that happens all the time. It's like, you got it, right? Good. Shut up. Go away. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was reading about this thing in your work that you, you always talk about success is based on fundamentals and coming back to the fundamentals. So Ellen, what fundamentals are we talking about? I mean, we've just talked about them, the, the fundamentals of connection, the fundamentals of communication, the fundamentals of collaboration. I mean, I, I come back to them time and time again. And, and as much as we want to think, but wait, isn't there more? Like, yes, but those more things are built on the same firm foundations. You know, and if you point to almost anything in human behavior, I can bring it back to one of those three things, if not all of them, because what this becomes the underpinning of how relationships work and leaderships are based on relationship. So yeah, so the fundamentals keep coming back to how do you practice these things? So if you want, you know, if you want to be a better leader, you need to do what better leaders do. So for example, if you want to be a better connector, try listening with empathy. Right? If you want to be a better communicator, ask for a receipt. If you want to be a better collaborator, make sure that people get their psychological safety needs met. Right. So it suddenly then it becomes almost like a computer software program. And, you know, I, I'm now totally using an analogy where I've gone out of my depth and into yours. But if you think about it, it's very much of a code. Right. It's like if you want this, then do that. If you do this, then that. I mean, there's you can break all of these things down to their fundamental behavioral actions, whether it's around there's actions around connection, one's around communication, one's around collaboration. Yes, some of them overlap. It's not like there are these three discrete things completely. And on top of or surrounding all of that, what is your mindset? What is your mindset around leadership? Because I think that in some ways is kind of, you could call that 
the overarching fundamental, or you mm-hmm. could call it or the, the ground, which is basically what do you think leaders do? Too many leaders, from my experience, end up in the leadership role because they were excellent doers, right? They were high performers and they got seen for being great high performers. And someone said, hey, Nishan, you're really good at that. Why don't you lead the team of people that do that, right? The problem with that is there's a big gap between being a high performer and facilitating high performance in others. And you cannot close that gap by just working harder. In fact, so many people who wind up in leadership roles who are high performers, they mean really well. But, you know, trying to do more of the same isn't going to cut it. They have to find ways to start facilitating high performance in others, which is a very different skill set, which involves really understanding how do I connect, how do I communicate, and how do I collaborate. And in the realm of connection, communication, and collaboration, how do we deal with the toxic treatment and the toxic environment? The talk you're saying in the workplace or in life? Where, where are we speaking? That's a pretty broad question. Let's talk about life. In life. So how do we deal with a toxic environment? Well, for one thing, you know, we talk about connection. So connection isn't that I need to connect with everyone everywhere all the time. So, you know, we talked earlier about boundary violations. I think one thing that's really important when it comes to toxic environments is how do we set healthy boundaries? How do we learn to say no? And not coming from this indignant, righteous, three-year-old bully, no, no, <laughs> no, but really like, no, this doesn't work for me. And, and being able to walk away where you can, right? So I think that's part of it. And because, let's face it, I mean, you look at the vitriol that goes back and forth, like, let's just say right now on social media around politics, which I don't want to get into too much. But if you look at that, for example, no one, when people are in that kind of excited emotional state, is really going to listen to anybody else in listen from the point of view to try to really understand them. They might want to listen to respond and poke holes in your argument and tell you what an idiot you are, but they're not really listening to understand. So the first thing I think just around toxicity is you've got to create some places where you're not exposed to it all the time because it is draining. It will drain and sap your energy. So setting some healthy boundaries and finding people we talked about support and community earlier. It's like, how do you find those people around you that will be your cheerleaders and help you stay sustained and supported over time? So that's where I'd start. Love this. I would love to ask you that. What do you do in the first 60 to 90 minutes of your morning? What do I do in the first 60 to 90 minutes of my morning? The, the magic window. Well, what I do is I run 20 miles and then I meditate for an hour, all in the same 60 minutes. 20 miles every I'm day? I'm joking. I'm <laughs> sorry, I was saying, how can I run 20 miles in 60 to 90 minutes? I was setting you up for, I was, that was my joke for the day here. No, so what do I do in the first 60 to 90 minutes? A uh, few things. When I get up, one thing I, I love to say I do this every day, but this is what my general ritual is around. One thing is I get up, I drink two big glasses of water because I just find I have to actually clear out my brain a little bit. So I do that. Then the next thing I do is usually the night before I've written out kind of my vision for the day in terms of tasks, as it were. And then, and I, and I learned this technique and I'm, I, I can't remember where I learned it from, but I love it. It's, you know, cause I was never a huge journaler, but I found this, it's called like, it's called the two minute journal. And I'll, I'll probably think of where I got this from, but I can't remember the guy's name. And I, I know about five minute journal <laughs> from yeah, Tim Ferriss. 
this is not five minute journal from Tim Ferriss. This is a two minute journal from someone else. And I can't remember his name and I feel bad because I won't take credit for it. But if I can think of his name, I'll tell you. So basically there's three things to this journaling. Number one is make a list of what are the things. And when you say things, it can be like one or two things. What are the things that you're not going to do today? Right? Cause I think we all have that weight of, I should get to these things. Right. But, but just, just the act of writing them down somehow it's like taking this giant 50 pound weight off of your shoulders and putting it on the paper. You know what? I'm not going to get to this today. Okay. And then the next thing is what is the one most important thing? If I think about all of my projects, what is the most important one thing that will make progress today? Okay. And then I write that down because that becomes kind of my North star for, I'm going to focus on this thing today. Now there might be some other little administrative tasks or whatever it might be that aren't the priorities, but I'm going to focus on this thing next. And then the next thing I'm going to write to is what are two or three things that I am grateful for? Because by starting in this place of gratitude, you cannot experience gratitude and scarcity at the same time. Have you ever noticed that? Right. It's a profound thought. I had a teacher. I can't remember who told me that. But, you know, if you're in a, gra- a grateful place, you're in abundance. And so that is a great resourceful place to start your day. So that all takes me a few minutes. Then what I do is usually around I have a little kind of yoga for dummies, like 20, <laughs> 25 minutes of stretching because I wake up. My back's usually kind of tight. So I do some stretching and stuff. And then I have a Muse headband. I don't know if you know these. It's a little biometric feedback yeah. device. It's for meditation. I use, And I'll do Muse for 10 minutes or if I'm feeling exciting, 15 minutes. So that's something I do in the mornings. That being said, there are some mornings where I switch it up and I go, if the weather's not, I might go for a four mile run first thing and then come back and do some of that stuff afterwards. So I'm not like I'm the same thing every single day, but those are my variations. Did you joke about meditate or you meditate as well? No, I mean, no, 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 I do. I said in terms of, I use the Muse uh, headband. I meditate with that for 10 or 15 minutes. So I do, I do meditate. What kind of meditation from that app? Which one? I do the brain. There's a brain app. There's like brain, there's heart, there's breathing. I do the, the mind, the mind meditation from that Muse app. That's the one that I enjoy. So Great, Alan. And uh, since we are approaching towards the end of this conversation, and before I ask you my last question, I want to ask you that where can people learn about you and your work or anything? Absolutely. So the easiest place to find me is to go to my book's website because it's easier to spell than my name. So the book's website is www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. Again, Cracking the Leadership Code spelled exactly the way it sounds. And that will link you to the book page. While you're there, you can actually download the first chapter of the book and preview it. That will link you right to the alahunkins.com website where you can learn all about the other work that I'm doing. Like, for example, I might be running in 2021, we'll be running the 30-day online leadership challenge again. So there'll be some information about that. You can also find out about all the various training, speaking, consulting, and coaching work that I do with either individuals, teams, and organizations all under the umbrella of helping people to become better leaders. And since you've listened this far, you are now part of the end of the podcast club, which is a rare (laughs) group, which means that if you have any questions about anything that uh, Nishant and I talked about today, feel free to email me directly. So this is my (laughs) email address. Just don't spam me, but it's Alain, A-L-A-I-N at alainhunkins.com, A-L-A-I-N-H-U-N-K-I-N-S.com. And you can make a little certificate for yourself. I am part of the end of the podcast club. (laughs) Thank you for making my life easier. (laughs) There you go. So Ellen, Is there anything that 
I should have asked you and I didn't ask you. Oh my gosh, that is a great load. That's like the, that's the consultant bonus question. I can think, <laughs> I can think of about 73 things, but I don't think people want to listen to us that much longer. So I will share number one thing. I will share one thing, which is, you know, you would say, Alain, so I'm being you now for a moment. I would say, so Alain, if there is one piece of advice that you would suggest for everyone, if they want to accelerate their ability to get more potential out of life and be a better leader or just a better person, what would it be? So that's the question I'd ask. How does that sound? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So let's assume you all heard the question because you did. (laughs) So, (laughs) So my answer to that question is what's the number one thing I'd recommend? I would say seek out feedback from other people early and often frequently go to people and ask them not just how what do you do well but what could you do even better and seek out a wide variety of people and the appropriate response to whatever they say is thank you for the feedback and then take it absorb it and don't throw it in the trash until you get more than a data point of one you know ask the same questions to numerous people and start to realize that when you get five or six or seven data points of feedback other than your own they have a much better accurate perspective on you than you do. So feedback is so underutilized because most of us have never experienced people who have modeled the feedback process in a healthy and useful way. So if you can create it yourself, create a feedback rich environment because you are going to get wherever you want to go a lot faster when you're getting consistent feedback from those around you. Thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation, Aaron. I really thank enjoyed it. You. Thank you. I really enjoyed it too, Nishan. A real pleasure being with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again okay.